Today's reading is from Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There, thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord, our God, I will seek your good. The word of the Lord. So to just kind of orientate everyone um, where we are, uh, following Easter and, and, and going through the Gospel of Matthew, um, we're doing a series talking about, so, so Jesus at the end of Matthew says, you know, go therefore and disciple the nations. And so um, the question then is, what does it mean to be discipled and to live as a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ? And so a great place to turn is to the, the songs of ascent, the Psalms of ascent, um, Psalm 120 through 134. Uh, these are the great pilgrim songs that were sung by the children of Israel as they went up to Jerusalem. Uh, three times a year to, to celebrate uh, the great festivals of faith. And uh, Eugene Peterson, who's most famous for his message translation, uh, paraphrase of the Bible, um, wrote this amazing book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, looking at how each one of these psalms reflects a different aspect of what it means to be a disciple. And so he is kind of our guide, our primary guide as we go through these psalms and look at what they have to say to us. God's word has to say to us now about living as a disciple. So there's our framework. That's our, our setting our feet. So here's a phrase for you. It's time to go to church. Now, all of you heard that phrase this morning in some form or another, and you got here. So I know I'm sort of preaching to the choir. But when you hear that phrase, what pops into your head? How does that make you feel? There's a lot of different ways that could make you feel. I mean, one way is it could fill you with anxiety or, or dread. Oh, oh no, now I have to go to a place that is filled with strangers and I have to make small talk and I have to wonder, will people notice me? Because I don't want to just be anonymous, but will they over-notice me and sort of glom onto me and be too desperate? Uh, is the music going to be bad? No. Uh, uh, is the sermon going to be uh, too long or boring? TBD on that one. Um, uh, is someone going to say something crazy? Is someone going to corner me? Like there's all sorts of, when you walk into a strange place or a place you haven't been too many times, that can be an anxiety-inducing experience for sure. Maybe that phrase, it's time to go to church, maybe it fills you with indifference. Like it doesn't stir anything within you. Churches, it's just something you do. It's somewhere you go because that's what you do. It's what you've always done. It's like waking up in the morning and pouring yourself a cup of coffee. It's routine. It's duty. It's, it's part of the rhythm of your life. Now, maybe you hear it's time to go to church, and that fills you with exhaustion. Now, that means I have to get dressed. I can't just lounge around in my PJs. I've got to get the kids ready, and that's like pulling teeth. And then we got to get everyone in the car, and then we have to go from fighting in the car to actually getting along with one another before we walk through the church doors. Maybe you think about it like a workout. I don't want to, but I should. It's, it's good for me. 
And trust me, I've, I've been training Brad Hoffbauer, uh, our intrepid uh, captain for our Team World Vision, uh, Twin Cities Marathon team. And in doing that, uh, there are days, like say yesterday, uh, when I have to force myself to get out there and go for the run. I don't want to, but I should. It's good for me. But maybe, just maybe, it's a live option. You have the reaction of our psalmist this morning. He hears, let's go to the house of the Lord, which is the ancient Hebrew version of, it's time to go to church, and feels glad. And actually, that word glad is a little bit too weak. Other translations say, I rejoiced when they said, let's go to church. Can you imagine that reaction? almost jumping out of your seat for joy. Now, I love coming to church, but, but when was the last time that I rejoiced about it? And what is it about worship? So Psalm 122, that the heading for it is worship. That's the aspect of the life of discipleship that we're looking at. And so what is it about worship properly understood that would cause one's heart to leap for joy? That's how Peterson renders that phrase in the message. And so first of all, I think it's important to go all the way back to sort of the beginning. One of the framing uh, devices that Peterson uses in introducing these psalms is he talks about having either a pilgrim mindset or a tourist mindset when it comes to following Jesus. And so the question then is, is are we coming to worship as a pilgrim or are we coming as a tourist? Because the posture of our hearts in that matter and the expectations that they entail makes a gigantic difference. If you're a, tur a tourist coming to worship, you're coming for a show. You're coming in some way to be entertained. It's actually a, a huge issue that faces African-American congregations in Harlem is that during the peak tourist season, you know, all tons of people from Europe are coming to New York City and they have these bus tours that you can go on to go to, you know, a real gospel service in Harlem. And you'll have a congregation of 50 people with 200 people in the balcony. There is tourists. And think about what a weird dynamic that would be, sort of people. Look, like, imagine if the balcony was just filled with people right now who were here to, like, watch us worship in the way that we worship. That would just fundamentally alter the dynamic of the service. It would be weird. It would be sort of hard to get over. Even if they were paying us, like, 10 bucks a person to be in here, we probably <laughs> wouldn't turn them away. But, like... Like a bunch of tourists here, it just, it just would change things. And you know, tourists, they come to worship for themselves. They come for an experience. They come to take something home with them. And you know, there's lots of Christians that show up to church with a, a tourist mindset. And, and as a pastor, you know, when that dynamic takes hold, that, that tourist mindset takes hold, uh, you want to end a service like, you know, Maximus in the movie Gladiator. Are you not entertained? <laughs> But a disciple is a pilgrim, not a tourist. And a disciple is, is a pilgrim, means they're on a journey, they're, they're following Jesus on the way to God. And, and you're coming to worship as a pilgrim, not of seeing a spectacle, that's not your expectation, but of meeting God. And you're not searching out just an experience, but a relationship. And it's not just coming and then going, but, but coming and, and being sent, commissioned, to go on a mission in the world and, and, and not just to take something for yourselves, but to offer something and not just to be filled up, to, but to actually be poured out. 
And so this pilgrim tourist distinction, this this posture of mind and heart, it, it makes all the difference in the world. And so when we come to worship as a pilgrim and we read this psalm, then we can understand what it is about going, hearing that phrase, let's go to church. That would make us glad. You know, not just happy, but glad. So Peterson, in, in, in reflecting on, on why worship elicits joy in this psalm, he says that there's three things that it does in, in the Christian formation of the disciple. And he says, first, that worship... When we do it right, it provides this workable structure for life. And the second thing he does is that it nurtures our need to be in relationship to God, especially when we don't feel like it. And the last thing he says it does is it centers our attention on the decisions of God. So we're going to look at those three things a little bit more closely, especially that first one, providing a workable structure for life, nurturing our need to be in relationship with God, and keeping our attention centered on the decisions of God. So first, worship offers us a workable structure for for life. In verse 3, it says, Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together. And what the Hebrew means here is that Jerusalem is this city that is is structured in in this tight, logical, orderly, coherent way, both physically and and, and socially. It's a city that's very architecture, the very way that it's laid out, it's designed. It has this theological message. Now, at the center of Jerusalem was the temple. And so Jerusalem was a city, I mean, for everything else that happened there, it was a city built around a church. Not just a a church that happened to find itself in a city. And so worship is at the center of Jerusalem. And so for Christians, worship is at the center of our lives in Christ. And worship in Jerusalem had a very clear structure to it. It was where offerings were made, offerings for atonement or thanksgiving or to fulfill vows that you had made. It was a place where people came to celebrate the great festivals of the faith, which were themselves times when they were reminding themselves and and being reminded of everything that God had done for them, liberating them from slavery, giving them the law, giving them the land, freeing, protecting, preserving, accompanying them over the centuries. And so our hope here at Rez is, is that our life together, our worship life together, provides sort of a similar, well-grounded structure for, for life. You know, we roughly follow the church calendar here. Uh, we're not slaves to it, but, but we, we, we definitely follow the church calendar in the sense that the two great feasts of the Christian year, Christmas and Easter, that that's kind of the two tent poles of, of the way that we order the seasons of church life here. And so each and every year, we're going to be celebrating and remembering the incarnation and the resurrection as these are the two things that we always have to call to mind of why we are who we are and what we're about. And so just the overall church calendar gives a well-ordered structure to life, even more than the sort of secular calendar of, you know, the school year, which also, you know, which is another structure to life. Uh, but, But the church here is our solid structure. And when you come into the worship service, you know, we have a liturgy, we have an order of service, and that's also supposed to support a well-ordered, well-structured life. You know, they start with a call to worship. So our very presence here is in response to God's invitation to enter in. And then, you know, we confess our sins, we acknowledge, we've fallen short. We are utterly dependent upon God's grace to get up and keep moving. 
And we hear uh, words of encouragement and assurance of our forgiveness. And, and as we celebrate the fact that we are forgiven people, that Matt talked about prayer, we've been given this ministry of reconciliation. Well, one of the ways we reflect that reconciliation with one another is we pass this peace with one another, you know, each and every week, sharing Christ's peace that he's given us. And we sing songs of praise, which are themselves filled with words and images and paraphrases and echoes of scripture, which are all about what God in Christ has done. And we pray prayers together, calling out for God, calling out to God in help or, or for thanksgiving. And, and then we come to this moment where scripture is read and expounded upon, and then we gather at the table, the center of our life together, word and table, as we are formed and nourished for the life of discipleship. And we're invited to then respond with gifts and offerings, and we confess our common faith together, and then we're blessed and sent out to be in mission in the world. And so the very point, the structure, the order of worship is, is to be well bound together. To cohere to forming us as disciples, as sinners saved by grace, called, equipped, built up, and sent out into the world to work for and bear witness to God's kingdom. And so our worship then is not just this list of things that we're running through every week, but it's intentionally structured in such a way to provide us with a solid structure for life. Because we become what and even how we worship. That has such a soul-shaping effect on us. And this truism that, that we become how and what we worship was, was captured amazingly uh, by the late great author uh, David Foster Wallace, DFW, who's most famous um, for a book he wrote called Infinite Jest. Really long book, um, but widely regarded as one of the finest works of fiction, at least of uh, the late 20th, early 21st century. And David Foster Wallace was invited to give a commencement address at Kenyon College in the year 2005. And it's a very famous commencement address, and it was called This is Water. And so he's trying to impart some perspective, not just wisdom, but perspective to you know, people about my age. I graduated college in 2004. And so he, he, he's talking to these students, and, 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 and David Foster Wallace said, he said, but here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're necessarily evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They're the default settings. And so the question then is not, you know, whether we worship or not, but what to worship and how to worship. And when we worship the God of Psalm 122, the God we know 
in Jesus Christ. We're freed from the consequences of a false worship that will ultimately destroy us, body, soul, and spirit. Right? True worship holds us together. False worship breaks us apart. And true worship, it's not just about this theological uh, structure for life or even this praxis for life that'd be making about something that just happens in our head or something that we just do. It's broader than that. It also provides us with a community that supports that, that nourishes that, that does it together. If we read verse 3 and 4 together, it makes it clear. It says, Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up. The tribes of the Lord. Now, worship is a place where all the tribes go, 12 tribes. They all had their different territory and their different customs and their different identities, but they're all made one in their worship. And so we, we, we're, we're very different people in this room, all of us. We have different jobs, different talents, different passions, different interests, different incomes, different stages of life, different experiences, but all of us are made one in worship. God brings us together to support, sustain, equip, sharpen, and care for one another. And what else would bring all of the people who are in this room together right now than worship? I don't think there's anything else. So that's what worship provides us with, this workable structure for life. You know, theology and practices and a community. But the the second thing it does is it nurtures our need to be in relationship with God. Worship is is the place where we obey this command to praise God. The the tribes all uh, go up to Jerusalem for one reason. We see that at the end of verse 4. To praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. Now on this, uh, Eugene Peterson says, This command to give thanks runs right down the center of all Christian worship. A decree, a word telling us what we ought to do. And that what we ought to do is praise. When we sin and mess up our lives, we find that God doesn't go off and leave us. He enters into our trouble and saves us. That is good, an instance of what the Bible calls gospel. We discover reasons and motivations for living in faith and find that God is already helping us to do it, and that is good. Praise God. A Christian, wrote St. Augustine, should be an alleluia from head to foot. That is the reality. That is the truth of our lives. God made us, redeems us, provides for us the natural, honest healthy, logical response to that is to praise God. And when we praise, we are functioning at the center. We are in touch with the basic core reality of our being. And this is especially true when we don't necessarily feel like it. Right? Worship, it keeps us connected. It keeps us in relationship. And and from those obedience, feelings follow that. And we live in an era that values authenticity almost above anything else, right? It's important to speak your truth, to be yourself. What matters isn't so much, you know, being right, but keeping it real. And in a world that's been, you know, standardized and homogenized and commodified, and people and things have become disposable or interchangeable in so many ways, we have this quest, this understandable quest for something real and authentic. You know, for someone who who says what they really think and thinks what they really say. But this command to praise, it cuts against that cultural tendency. It says that what matters more than authenticity is faithfulness. 
or to put a much sharper point on it, obedience. When it comes to worship, the psalmist is saying, don't worry about whether or not you feel like it. Just do it. So we've seen that worship provides us with this workable structure for life. It nurtures this need to be in regular, constant, uh, consistent relationship with God, whether or not we feel like it. And lastly, we worship because it's the place where our attention is centered on the decrees of God. But I think a better way to say it, and it is actually true to what the psalm is saying, is to say that worship keeps our attention focused on the kingdom of God. In verse 5, it says of Jerusalem, there stand the thrones for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Now, in the Old Testament, those thrones, they represent the Davidic kingdom. But in light of the New Testament, those thrones now represent the thing that Jesus talked about more than anything else, the kingdom of God. And so when we go to church, when we worship, we ought to have our attention drawn time and again to God's gracious just, holy, and loving reign. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. Then all of these things will be added to you. And so in worship, we are constantly confronted with Jesus' challenge of the kingdom, that this world isn't as it should be, that, that we aren't as we should be, and that there's another reality we're being invited to live into. That God is already at work in the world, and he's inviting us to join him in that work. And so worship is at the heart of discipleship. Because it provides us with an orderly structure for life. It nurtures our relationship, need to be in relationship with God. And it keeps God's kingdom vision ever before us. And you will never find Christian life or Christian community without instances of worship. And worship isn't the exception, it's the rule, it isn't incidental, it's central. And to be disciples, we need worship as much as we need breathing in air or drinking water or eating food. And the air we breathe in worship is the Holy Spirit, and our food and our beverage are the word and sacrament. And that's why we put so much time, so much energy, so much thought, so much attention, so much effort, and let's just be really, really real here, so much money, so much of our, our resources collectively as a community go into this, what for some of us is just over an hour every single week. And so the question can arise then, well, is that really worth it? Is that the best use of our resources? In thinking about the, that question, consider these words from uh, the great 19th century English preacher Charles Spurgeon, who said, Look at the mower in the summer's day, with so much to cut down as the sun sets. He pauses in his labor. Is he a sluggard? He looks for his stone and begins to draw it up and down his scythe with rink a tink, rink a tink. Is that idle music? Is he wasting his precious moments? How much might he have mowed while he was ringing out those notes on his scythe? But he is sharpening his tool, and he will do far more once again. He gives his strength to those long sweeps which lay the grass prostrate in rows before him. And so, brothers and sisters, this morning as we worship the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit, we aren't simply wasting one of the first hours of our week that could have been better spent, you know, serving the poor or cleaning up our neighborhood or eating brunch and drinking a mimosa and reading the New York Times. And nor would I say, are we merely sharpening our tool? Rather, we are being sharpened. 
We're the tool. We're being sharpened to work for God and his kingdom purposes, which is to work for for the peace, the wholeness, the shalom, the flourishing of ourselves, our families, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, and this city and this world for God's glory. Because the truth is this, when it comes to worshiping God in spirit and truth, there's never a dull moment, only sharpening moments. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.